Luke chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 1 all the way to 12 today. Luke 12, 1 to 12. And before we begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning that we can gather together and have fellowship. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word together in the Sunday school hour, to sing together, to welcome each other, to laugh, to talk, to connect, to encourage one another, to build one another up, and now to sit under the preaching of your word. I pray that you would use this text to impact the hearts of those here today, just as you've used this text to impact my heart in preparation for this message. It's all about you today, Lord, and, and every day. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified through the rest of our service. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's look at our text together this morning. Luke 12, starting in verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will, be, will, will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the hilltops, or excuse me, housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But... The one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. There's a story uh, that is told that maybe you've heard of before of a zoo that was noted for their great collection of different animals. Um, they had everything, arctic animals, tropical animals, exotic animals, uh, farm animals, any type of animal that you could think of, it was there. And uh, well, one day, as this happens at zoos, a gorilla, the, their gorilla died. And to keep up the appearance of a full range of animals, the zookeeper hired a man to wear a gorilla suit and fill in for the dead animal. So it was his first day on the job, and the man didn't know how to act like a gorilla very well. Um, and as he tried to move more convincingly, he uh, got too close to the wall of the enclosure of the, the side there, and he fell into the, the lion exhibit. And he began to scream, convinced that his life was over, uh, until, get, get this, the lion spoke to him saying, Be quiet, or you're going to get us both fired. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees 
as mentioned in verse 1 in our text, was an act. It was an act. Instead of playing the gorilla, they played the righteous man. Their costume of religiosity deceived many that sat under their character and teaching. The Greek word hypocrisy that's used in our text literally means actor or pretender or someone playing a stage role. It's the only place in the Gospel of Luke that the word hypocrisy or hypocrite is used. And it's this hypocrisy that Jesus warns his disciples. But before we dig into this warning that Jesus gives, the warning to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the context is something that we absolutely have to consider. Um, Context is always key, always. Uh, And without considering the context of Luke 12, we could come up with a far uh, just different interpretation uh, that was intended uh, by the Lord in this text. And and so we have to look at those the way that our text starts with those three words, in the meantime. This is key because it connects to what was said previously. It points back to what took place in Luke 11, 37 to 54. It points back to Jesus at the lunch. It points back to Jesus' words concerning the Pharisees' heart in 11.39, which says that their hearts were full of greed and wickedness. And verse 44, which likens them to unmarked graves. It points back to the condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes seen in the woes. It points back to their hateful, murderous attitudes towards Jesus, which would eventually culminate in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We don't know the distance of time between verse 54 of chapter 11 to Luke 12, verse 1. But we do know because of how Luke 12 begins that these words of Jesus connect the subject matter that Pastor Dan covered last week. I've been thinking about it this way in my study. Luke eleven thirty-seven to 54 is addressed to the Pharisee, whereas Luke 12, 1 through 12 is addressed primarily to Jesus' friends and disciples. And, and, and the same, so it's the same subject material, but intended for different audiences. And the setting of this discourse is something that we, we have to take note of. I think the crowds are mentioned purposely by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I think talking about the crowds will help us think um, well of this text. How many people does our Bible say that were gathered here? Look at your Bibles. Yeah, it says many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling one another. In the original language, the number here that's used to the crowd, it represents the highest number that you could use in the Greek language, 10,000 people. And when it goes over that number, or the group's too great to count, it reads just the way as we see in our Bibles. So many thousands, or so many tens of thousands of people gathered. In other words, I don't know how many people exactly were in this crowd, but there's a lot of people here, right? We're talking about a lot of people. I I picture being at a ball game and being shoulder to shoulder or being on an airplane. Well, I guess at an airplane, there's not as many people, but you're still, it's uncomfortable. You're crowded, right, together. Uh, This is something you would have had to experience. Uh, There's so many people here in the crowd that people are stepping on each other. It's fair to say that a crowd this size would have made someone like Anthony Fauci extremely uncomfortable. We also have to understand that Jesus was the subject of conversation in this day. He was the hot topic. The Pharisees were saying one thing about Jesus, and Jesus was saying another and doing another. The Pharisees didn't deny the fact that Jesus' miracles took place, 
But, but what did they do with his divine acts of power? They attributed it to who? Satan, right? In my studies of this text, many of the commentators suggest that this large crowd is not predominantly for Jesus, but had been most likely influenced by the Pharisees' teaching. So you have Pharisees in this crowd and, and followers of the Pharisees. You have people there that are just watching, wanting to see things unfold, right? Just hoping to see something amazing. And then you have the followers of Jesus. And I, I would encourage you, I, I hope you get this through the context. I want you to kind of take off your 2021 shoes. I mean, don't actually take them off, but like I want you to set them aside, right? And lace up your ancient sandals. Put yourself into this crowd. Let's say that you're a follower of Jesus in this crowd, a crowd filled with Pharisees who wanted Jesus to be dead. There's a lot of uncomfortable tension in this, in this, uh, in this text. Some real peer pressure going on. And when Jesus speaks to his disciples, it's important to note that I don't think that Jesus is just speaking to the 12 here, but he's speaking to the group of people who had been following him. Uh, I, this too, like the crowd, would probably be a mixed bag. Uh, his disciples uh, the, the people following Jesus, there probably were some that were following him with their feet and others following him truly with their hearts. Jesus on the way to Jerusalem will again address these disciples in Luke 14 about the cost of discipleship. And he's talked about true discipleship before in our text. So why does he mention this so frequently, true discipleship? Why does he keep talking about it? Well, a lot of these disciples were on the fence with Jesus. They had not made a decision about Christ. And they were and could still be influenced by the Pharisees. And so the need to teach on real discipleship was much needed, which brings us to what Jesus commands his disciples in the midst of this hostile crowd. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I think this text, because of its intended audience and because of the knowledge uh, that Jesus had of their hearts, this text hinges on this warning. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, again, means actor or pretender in the original. A hypocrite may be known by the fact that his speech doesn't match his actions, right? This week I sat down and I thought through hypocrisy, thinking, you know, what can be observed by looking at the, the Pharisees' hypocrisy? And I, I made a list. It's not an exhaustive list, so be gracious. But, but this is what I came up with. The hypocrites love to be seen doing what's right. Hypocrites love to be honored by men and respected. Hypocrites reject private devotion to God. Hypocrites tend to be harsh with others and easy on themselves. Hypocrites are masterful at making even their faults look like successes. Hypocrites fear being discovered by others. One commentator put it this way, hypocrisy is of two kinds, pretending to be what we are not and concealing what we are. Pretending to be what we are not and concealing what we are. If we boiled it down, hypocrisy is steeped and deeply rooted in what? Pride. And though we're talking about the hypocrisy of those hard-hearted Pharisees that we would never liken ourselves to, we could find ourselves acting this way as even, even as believers, can't we? We could find ourselves acting and playing the hypocrite. It's a constant battle fighting pride in our hearts. Constant battle. Our hearts are always sinfully working to make ourselves look better than they really are. 
And it's only when we confront it with the Scripture that we can keep our hearts in check and put it in its rightful place. Notice Jesus says to the, the leaven of the Pharisees. Why leaven? Leaven or, or yeast, um, it, it's, when, it, when it's mixed with dough, it can't be seen, right? You can't, you can't separate the two. But, when you, but you can see the effects of it as it cooks. It permeates the dough and, and begins to spread and puffs up the bread. And the same is true of the Pharisees who were not only hypocrites but teachers of hypocrisy. They taught this false religion to multitudes of people. And in this case, this hypocrisy took root in many and began to spread and permeate throughout, throughout the people's hearts and lives. And the same could be true of hypocrisy in our own life. When Jesus says, beware of this leaven, he is saying, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Jesus knew the sinful state of man's heart, that it's prideful and easily susceptible to this sin. How does God view hypocrisy? He hates it. He abhors it. He loathes it, right? Uh, it, it just go back again to look at Pastor Dan's text that he preached last Weak, and how he spoke to those Pharisees. Leaven, I read in my study, it's, it's sour. Not like a good sour, like Sour Patch Kids or something like that, but it's like a ugh, sour. Um, it has a sour taste and a bad smell. Hypocrisy is not a soothing aroma to God, but rather it's loathsome. It separates man from God. It's evil. It's a rejection of God. Paul uses the same metaphor of leaven in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8, when he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Jesus is speaking to the crowds and what he's saying to us this morning is of eternal significance. It's something we must all guard our hearts against. And Jesus gives us three helpful ways, three, three helpful ways in this passage to guard our hearts from hypocrisy. And I'll give you those ways just right now. Fear God, confess Christ, and honor the Holy Spirit. Fear God, confess Christ, and honor the Holy Spirit. It's a Trinitarian help. Theology, right? Theology isn't just for ABF or seminary students or pastors, right? But theology matters to us all. Matters to us all. Because false teaching and false teachers, they don't know God, right? And because they don't know God, they don't point us to God. The Pharisees did not truly know God with their hearts. They spoke of him frequently and yet knew him not. To truly follow God, we must know who God is. Is that true? And to guard ourselves against hypocrisy, we must know God and live in light of who he is and what he's done and what he will continue to do. So let's begin with our first point. We can guard our hearts of hypocrisy first by fearing God. When I say fearing God, I don't mean fear in the type of way that I'm terrified of spiders. You know, like I'm fearful of spiders. I don't know if anybody else shares that sentiment in here. But when I, yeah, see some hands right. Respect. I, yeah, we share that. The struggle's real. Um, but it's, it's to revere God. It's to acknowledge him in all of our ways. And there are three theological truths here that should provoke our fear of God. His presence, his power, and his providence. Presence, power, and providence. 
Note here in verses 2 and 3, look at verses 2 and 3, that we should beware of hypocrisy because God is always present and he's all-knowing. Counterfeit Christians or, or hypocrites, right? They're not a problem for God. Counterfeit Christians or hypocrites, they can fool pastors. They can fool family members and friends, but they can't fool God. Why? Because God is all-present and all-knowing. I can't divide this room into believers and unbelievers. I don't know your hearts. I can hear what you profess. I can see how you live your life, but only God knows your heart. And because of who he is, he can effortlessly divide this room into both sheep and goats. Look at what Luke writes in verses 2 and 3. Look at that text. Everything will be revealed, right? To boil it up, or to sum it up. Everything will be revealed. You can try to cover up your sins. You can try to hide your past. You can try to operate in the dark, but there's no place too dark for God, is there? Psalm 139 comes to mind. Verses 7 through 12, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. There's no place too dark for God. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide from God. Just ask the prophet Jonah, right, who tried to run from God. What happened to him? Yeah, God ordained for a fish to swallow him up, right? And, and, and get this, even in that fish, God was there, right? Luke used their typical Jewish homes to illustrate this point. The houses that they lived in, they were square-like. They were made up of, of a muddy clay-like uh, substance. And they usually had an inner room in the middle of the house where they put all their valuables and prized possessions to keep them safe from robbery and so on. And, and some historians say that they used this inner room, this private room, to kind of talk about private matters with one another, to keep things secret right? Uh, at our house, we don't really have to have private rooms yet because my kids, they don't know how to spell. So when we need to communicate to one another, we just spell things, Kaylee and I do. Um, so we don't need an inner room yet, but I'm sure someday we will. But, but do you get the picture here of the inner room? God can see you with 100% clarity in your basement as well as he can see you outside. God can see you just as clearly in the pew or in these seats as he can see you in the privacy of your own home. He can see your heart clearly now just as he can see it clearly as you leave here and, and you drive home today. You can't, in other words, hide hypocrisy from God. You can't hide who you truly are from God. Hypocrisy will be uncovered because he sees and knows all things. Reminds me of Proverbs 1.7. Again, this should provoke fear in God. Fear is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Knowing that God is always there and that he sees all things, right? It should cause us to live in light of who he is and his, and his presence that's constantly there. We all live in a fishbowl, fishbowl before God. You know, some people say that the pastors live in a fishbowl, of which we do, but, but truly, we all live in the fishbowl 
uh, because God can see us all. And if you believe that he sees and knows all things, that should cause you to acknowledge him in all of your ways and to revere him as God. A fool says on the flip side in his heart that there is no God, and one day the fool will see how foolish his ways are when his deeds are brought into the open with God. They might get away with their sins now and their hypocrisy, but look at what is said of the hypocrites and sinners alike. Look at what Jesus says. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I said hilltops before, but it's housetops. Again, if we look at their homes, they were square-like and, and, the, and the, the, the roofs were flat. They were flat. And, you know, when they had to make an announcement back in that time, you know, like a graduation announcement or something, they just scream it. You know, hey, it's going to be today. We're going to have pizza. And, like, everything. that's how the announcements were done in those times. This is the picture of what is to become of the hypocrites' secret sins. The sins committed in the private inner rooms will one day become public at the great day of judgment. Even the most gifted hypocrites, right? Even the most gifted of them that only put down their external guard in the inner room of the house, they will too be found out because God is always present, always you can read more about this judgment and the unveiling of, of sins in, Re, in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. It's known as the great white throne judgment where God judges the sins of the unbelieving. There will be judgment, and there is no secret kept from God. Therefore, playing the hypocrite is foolish. I came across a story this week of a man who broke into a church in Scotland. And uh, he had this weird desire to steal all the communion plates, um, of which, yeah, I don't know, you're going to break in and steal communion plates. They must have had some, like, bling on them or something. Uh, so don't steal our communion plates. They're just normal uh, plates. But, but this guy, he wanted to go in and steal all the communion plates in the church. And so he broke in, and hearing steps as, as he was looking for these plates outside the building and expecting that he should be discovered, he hurried to the end of the church where seeing a large rope extended to the ground, he grabbed a hold of it for the purpose of climbing and escaping. But that rope ended up being a bell rope for the church bell. And as he put all his weight on the rope, the bell rung louder than it had ever rung before. And the man was found and charged. Say that to say this, God doesn't need us to ring a bell in order for him to catch us in sin, right? Because why? God is always there. So fear God because he sees all of your thoughts and deeds. Also fear God because he has power over your soul. Again, picture the setting of this crowd. Do you, do you, have you laced up your ancient sandals yet? Okay. The peer pressure in this, uh, in this crowd is real. Remember that Pharisees were not afraid to pass judgment on others. And, and yet Christ doesn't tell them to run away from this crowd. What, what does he say? Look at the text. My friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Man's power is limited. It's limited. Man can put a fellow man to death, but man has no power over another man's soul. They can beat us, they can bruise us, they can take every physical thing away from us, right? But they cannot and do not have power over our soul. 
Therefore, set your minds upward. Have some eternal perspective, because death is a reality to us all. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, which says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, hear that? Light momentary affliction, is prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Death is a reality for us all, but if the glory that awaits us is beyond comparison to the suffering that we face now, even if that suffering is, is persecution and the end of our life, why, how, how could we play the hypocrite out of fear? What does Paul say in, in Philippians 1.21, right? To live is Christ and, and to die is gain. To die is gain. Fearing God will help you even in peer pressure when your life is on the line. One commentator put it this way, reverential fear of God can set one free from paralyzing fear of the harm that human enemies can inflict. If you fear God, there's no reason to fear anyone else. I read up on some martyrs under Queen Mary who burned countless Christians at the stake, and it was recorded that this one man was brought before the court and demanded to recant of his faith. And they said to him, as they tried to convince him to recant of his faith, they said, life is sweet and death is bitter. And the martyr replied, true, life is sweet and death is bitter, but eternal life is sweeter and eternal death is more bitter. Look at what our text says that God has power over. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. The word for hell here is Gehenna in the Greek. Sounds a lot like Gehenna, but I'm, I'm sure that those places are nothing alike. I'm sure Gehenna is a, a lovely place. This is the place of final punishment. Gehenna derives from the Hebrew, meaning uh, the valley of uh, Hinnom. Uh, a ravine outside of the Jewish southern wall uh, where in the Old Testament, children were offered up as sacrifices to the god of Moloch. Um, this was a truly wicked place. This valley is an analogy of wickedness and eternal punishment. Uh, it's also a place that was used for, uh, to burn refuse and, and, and trash, and so it was often seen burning. Uh, so this is a purposely used word here to, to speak of the nature of hell, and this is the power that God has to send souls to hell, to, to Gehenna. And consider this, this, this sentence. If you fear man over God, if you fear man over God, it's fair to say that you don't know God. True? If you fear man over God, it's fair to say you don't know God. His power is unlimited, right? It's infinite. It's not dependent on anything outside of himself. God's power is not even limited to our bodies, for he has the authority to cast our souls into hell. Therefore, right, heed Jesus' words, beware of the damning false teaching and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Beware of their false teaching and their self-righteousness, which is really no righteousness at all, right? Fear God over man. God's presence, his power, they should absolutely provoke our fear and also his providence, God's children should continually remind themselves of God's providence, that he reigns and upholds the universe by the word of his power, 
He isn't distant from the events here on earth. Instead, he knows every need and provides as he sees fit according to the kind intentions of his will. This should provoke our reverence and acknowledgement of God. And Jesus brings up here five sparrows and two pennies in verses six and seven. What's he talking about here? Are not five sparrows, Jesus says, sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten by God? As a relatively still, we haven't lived there for a full year yet, I don't think. But as, as a relatively new homeowner, I have grown to love watching birds. Got a couple feeders, one in the front and one in the back. And I love looking at the birds, um, not, not just like the, the common birds, but I like looking at the, the blue jays, the cardinals, and the morning doves. Those are cool looking birds. Sometimes the blue jays get into, you know, I won't get into the, I like birds now. Uh, but uh, we, we always see, though, at our feeders, there's like a million of these things. Uh, the sparrows or the finches, I can't tell them apart. I tried looking it up, and it's like the different size of the beak, and I, don't, I can't measure it, so I don't know. But the sparrows, they're everywhere. And, 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 and sparrows are, are just, they're kind of boring, right? They're common. They're, they're all, you know, there's, there's hundreds of them every day that eat all of our feed. And, um, and it was a similar story back in Jesus' time. Sparrows were everywhere. Uh, they were everywhere. And they were, they were caught easily by bird traps. And, and you could buy five birds for two pennies or, or two Roman coins. These coins were like the lowest coin uh, value of the day. You only had to like work an hour to get one of these coins. Uh, and, and so sparrows were often bought by the poor so that they could eat them. Uh, they were the cheapest food in the ancient market. And, and, and then Jesus used the, the human hairs on her head. He says, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Sparrows, hairs on your head. What's Jesus' point? Just as we already covered, God knows all things. He knows you. He knows you even more than you know you, right? He knows how many hairs you have on your head, even counting the new hairs that grow. He knows when the hairs change colors. He knows when the hairs fall out, right? Why don't we know how many hairs that we have on our head? Do you know? Maybe you do if you're like, you only got a few left, but like, but, but, but that's besides the point, right? We don't know that number because it's insignificant, but that's Jesus's point. God perfectly knows all things and rules over all things, even things insignificant in our minds, like sparrows and hairs on our head or the lack thereof. How much more then does he know what's going on with us? In light of the coming persecution that all his true followers would face in the early church, Jesus knows when to speak a comforting word. That God does not forget about the, the hairs on your head or the sparrow, and he will not forget you. Remember that, church, in the days that we're living in. When persecution takes place, that God's presence is everywhere, that God's power is unlimited, and that God's providence is extended to his children. And don't fall prey to false teaching, right, as a way of escape. No one's coming after the false teachers. They, they, them in the world, they're like this, right? Hypocrisy depends on itself and self-effort, which can be tempting in difficult times, but that's contrary to fearing God. Many evangelicals in our day have folded when it comes to the current issues because they wish to avoid the scrutiny of this world. Instead, they seek acceptance from society. They fear man over God. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 4.12, right? He said to expect it. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something stranger were happening to you. 
If you think about it, succumbing to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees could have brought escape, comfort, and man's acceptance. To stand for Christ, however, on the contrary, brought life-threatening consequences, hate and loss. How do you guard your hearts in such a threatening culture? How do you guard your hearts when we are weak and have hypocrite tendencies? Jesus says, fear God, fix your mind on him, and know that he's always there. He has power over your soul, and he will providentially care for all who are his. Next, Jesus gives us another way to guard our hearts, which is through confessing or acknowledging Christ, as the ESV says. Fear God, and second point is to confess Christ. Jesus says in 8 and 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Church, look, confessing Christ is all-encompassing. It's all-encompassing. The word confess is the same word that's used in Romans 10, 9. Right? That, that, that text that says, if, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not everyone who reads Romans 10.9 will be saved. Right? If, if, if that were the case, we would just, we just wrote, we would write Romans 10.9 on a piece of paper and we'd just pass it out to the masses and have them read it out loud so that, that everybody would be saved. That's how we could deal with sin. Right? It's not that easy. It's not that simple. That's not what the word confess means. No, confessing Christ as Lord is declaring total allegiance to Christ. It's turning from sin in repentance. It's turning your soul over to Christ. It's dying to self. Romans 10.9 is saying salvation is for those who believe in who Jesus is, that he's the perfect son of God, and it's for those who believe what Jesus has done, that he died, he was buried, and and he rose three days later. And submitting to him as Lord of your life, that is what confession means here. And this is the confession that saves, to repent and believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is so contrary to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Pharisees claimed it was all about living a good life. It was all about doing more works. It's all about trying to be accepted by God uh, on your own terms. The self-righteousness of of, uh, hypocrisy of the Pharisees taught that you didn't need Christ. The answer to sin is found where? In yourself. There's, and that's the same damning heresy that is taught in religion today. There's so much hypocrisy all around us. And one clear and easy example of this is found in the Catholic Church. Catholics who run to confess their sins to a Catholic priest who are nothing more than Gentile, a Gentile pushing the same self-righteous leaven which is called hypocrisy in our text. Any real Catholic priest today would deny the person and work of Jesus Christ and therefore be unwilling to confess Christ truly as we see in Romans 10, 9. And to all those who deny Christ, who have let hypocrisy permeate their lives and their hearts, so much so that they model it and teach it to others, what does Jesus say of them? The one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If you'd like to turn with me, I'm, I'm headed to Matthew 25, 31 to 34. I think this is a good picture of what Jesus is saying. Verse 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
then he will sit on his glorious throne because uh, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. As I said before, I can't divide or discern the hearts of, of, of the people here or any heart. Neither can Pastor Dan or Pastor Aaron or Pastor Paul, but God can. And to those who deny Christ will be denied by the Lord in front of his heavenly court as seen in Matthew 25. There's no neutrality with God. You either confess Christ or you deny him. You can't have a hand on both God and the world. That's what hypocrisy teaches. That's what Christ warns us of here in our text. And we, we, we can beware of this through fearing God, confessing Christ. And there's one more way, and that's through the honoring the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, honoring the Holy Spirit. If we can look quickly here at verse 10, we'll read a few verses that have been misunderstood and misapplied um, and may have even made you scratch your head uh, upon first glance. Verse 10 says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. First, I want to establish that we are all blasphemers against God. Blasphemy is willful disobedience. It's an act of offense or speaking sacrilegiously about God. We've all rebelled against God. We've all profaned God, right? This is the, the doctrine of total depravity. We are all born into sin. We all have a sin nature. If we couldn't be forgiven of our blasphemy against God through Christ, then no one could be saved. It's fair to say that we can even sin against the Holy Spirit, right? Scriptures speak about quenching the work of the Holy Spirit and, and grieving the Holy Spirit, but that's not what Jesus is speaking of here. It says that we cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. That will not be forgiven. Why can this not be forgiven? Well, context, again, is important. Remember, the Pharisees did, did not deny the miraculous works of Christ, but they attributed his power right to who? Satan. Their rejection of Jesus as God was deliberate. Listen to the conversation of the Pharisees in John eleven forty seven to 48. They're gathered together. You know, it says the, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what did they do? They attributed his power to Satan said that he is a worker of Satan. Such deliberate rejection concerning the only one who can grant such repentance and faith makes forgiveness of sins impossible. It's only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that our hearts can be regenerate. 1 Corinthians 12.3 says that nobody will be able to confess that Jesus is Lord except through who? The Spirit. Hopefully you see here why this false teaching, this hypocrisy was so dangerous. It's false teaching. It's heretical. It cannot lead, and it does not lead anyone to the God of the Bible. It rather leads people to the God of this world, who is Satan. One of the books that PD has, the elders reading, has this quote that I'd like to share about false teachers and false religion. It says, false religion dazzles, distorts, diverts, and finally destroys. That's its ultimate destination, Right? Destruction. To buy into this hypocrisy would ultimately destroy any who followed it. 
It's only through fearing God, confessing Christ, and honoring the Holy Spirit that will protect one from such damnation. And as we finish our text this morning, it's important to establish that the Holy Spirit doesn't just show us Christ. But what does he do? He indwells within the believer. He helps the believer. Uh, it illumines the truth to the believer. Again, looking at this crowd and the hostility, looking towards the fringe followers of Jesus, right, that are on the fence, that they've not yet committed, not yet converted. Looking at you this morning that have not made a decision for Christ uh, in a world growing more and more hostile towards Christ and his church. And looking at true disciples in this room who need comfort in light of the unprecedented times and uncertain times ahead. Look at what Jesus promises here. It says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Not only... Not only will God, the Spirit, dwell within you, teach you, grow you spiritually, but he'll be with you to the very end, even if that end means death because of your confession of Jesus. I want to close with considering the first martyr after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which I believe is Stephen. And starting in Acts 6.8, says, And when Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. By what power was Stephen able to do such things? The Holy Spirit. Then it says in verse 9, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogues rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So it says in verse 12 that they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up and seized him and brought him before the council. And then what, we, what do we see in, in Acts 7? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see Stephen given an extraordinary uh, uh, teaching of, of, of the gospel in, in the Old Testament to these Jews, to these hypocrite Jews, right? And, he, and he, re he rejected the heresy and the false teaching of the Pharisees because they had rejected Christ. And after he's finished, the text reads, when they heard these things that, Je that Stephen uh, spoke, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, uh, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold these sins against them. And when he heard this, uh, when he had said this, rather, he fell asleep. Stephen clearly, if you read that, that passage, study it, he clearly feared God. He confessed Christ and he honored the spirit. Three ways to truly follow God and to avoid falling to the heretical hypocrisy of false religion, just as Jesus spoke in our passage. May we too follow the example of Stephen, even in, if it comes to persecution. Let's, uh, let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this morning's text. You know how to speak words of encouragement and words of warning at the perfect time. Lord, I pray that if there are any today that have not confessed you as Lord and Savior of their life, that this would be the day of their salvation, 
That, Spirit, you would shine the truth of the gospel in their hearts and that they would acknowledge you and revere you for the rest of their days. Be with this church, Lord, in these evil days that we live. Use it to continually proclaim the truth of the gospel, we pray. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You may be dismissed.